from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm delighted to be back here today to talk about the large and small issues that affect us every day and over time. In the spirit of New Year's resolutions and what today's guest would call the clean slate, we're going to talk about something that is both small and large and central to how our personal and professional lives unfold. Habits. Yes, folks, habits, their enormous power, and the different ways that we can learn to break the bad ones, make the good ones, and sustain the change for a more effective and happier life. We couldn't have a better person to help us with this today than Gretchen Rubin. She's the author of that blockbuster bestseller, The Happiness Project, and Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. If you'd like to ask Gretchen for help keeping your New Year's resolutions, talk to her why you haven't been able to in the past, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And if you're one of our fans listening at your computer with your headphones in and you want to just email us, you can do that as well. Just write to us at businessradio at SiriusX.com, XM.com. And Michelle, who's in the booth, will flag me and give me your message. So join in the conversation. We'd really love to hear what you have to say and to help you figure out how you're going to make these changes in your life. So once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And for now, I would like to welcome Gretchen to Women at Work. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm very happy to be talking to you today. Oh, we're thrilled, and I think many of us are very relieved because we need your help. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gretchen, you're clearly the happiness lady, and you've moved into habits. And there's a, a real connection there that I don't know if it's obvious to everybody why that connection is so important. What's the relationship between between happiness and habits. Well, you know, I had been writing and researching and talking to people for happiness for e- about happiness for years, and I really began to notice the pattern that when people talked about a big happiness challenge, it very often was something that at its core was a problem with the habit. So somebody would say, my problem is that I'm exhausted all the time. Well, that's about the habit of getting enough sleep. Or people <laughs> right. would say, like, well, my problem is I want to write a novel in my free time, and that's about the habit of having consistent work. And so I became increasingly drawn to the role that habits can play in helping us be happier, healthier, and more productive. Now, so in that, there are good habits and bad habits? Absolutely. And you know what's (laughs) interesting is often you can frame it as a good habit or a bad habit. So you can say, I want the habit of not staying up too late, or you can say, I want to have the habit of... Um, going to sleep earlier, you know, so a lot of times um, you can frame it the way you want. Right. So there are things that we do repeatedly that are getting in our own way. Yes. And there are ways we'd like to change those things. And then there's the way that we think about them. Yeah. Okay. So with that as a framework, how do we start thinking about changing ourselves? You know, it's New Year's and everybody's not only talking about their New Year's resolutions, but a lot of, pe- a lot of people are talking about that they don't make them because no one's ever stick. Right. Well, here's the thing. Like, this is, if I had to sum up the most important thing that I learned about habits, I would say this, that, you know, we all hear this expert advice, you know, do it first thing in the morning, start small, do it for 30 days, give yourself a cheat day. This is the way that Steve Jobs did it. This is the, you know, this is the way Benjamin Franklin did it. This is what's going to work for you. Because we're all Steve Jobs and Benjamin Franklin. Right. So you're like, well, it works for Steve Jobs. It's got to be good enough for me. But here is the thing. The key point is that we really have to begin by knowing ourselves and thinking about what is true for us. Because in some ways, we're like other people, and in other ways, we're very different from other people. And there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution. The only universal truth is when you look at the people who are the most productive, the happiest, the most successful, they have figured out how they work best or how they feel happiest, and they are very vigilant in making sure they get what they need in order to be their best. And so, you know, some people need to work in silence and calm and a lot of clear spaces, but then some people work better when there's a lot of buzz and abundance and choices and stuff going on. And so the people who do the best are the people who figure out where they do their best work and get themselves there. Um, but I think whenever somebody says, well, you should do this, or this is, this, this is what all successful people do before 8 a.m. or something, well, you've got to say, maybe that's true for me, 
But maybe that's not true for me because my habit might be very different from the habit that would work for someone else. Now, maybe your boss is saying, I think everybody does their best work. You know, we've got to have our staff meeting at 7 a.m. because that's when people are at their best. Well, if you're a night person, you are definitely not your best at 7 (laughs) a.m. Absolutely not. I have to tell you, this strikes a chord um, about a lot of places in my life, but I think about my mom, who's now 73, and she just retired. And my mother frequently um, bucked convention, And when she retired, she said she'd really done everything she wanted to do. She traveled where she wanted to travel. She had the career that she wanted to have. And she lived her adult life. It took a long time for her to start doing it. But one of the things was she had very clear routines, very clear habits, and she didn't worry about what other people's were. She knew what worked for her. And that's great. And and look, I mean, she's the rare and fortunate person who can look back and say, like, I got done all the things I wanted to get done. I think that's what we all want to achieve in our lives. It's feeling like, yes, I have the life that I want and I'm doing all the things that I I hope for myself and I expect for myself. And so that's great. I mean, that she was able to do that. It was amazing. But as her daughter, you know, I was one of those people who she'd say, well, why can't you do this? And some of those things I could. Yeah. And some of those things I couldn't. And I had to sort out. Um, when was it personality? When was it that I was bucking instruction? And I have to say in your book, which I absolutely loved and highly recommend, you talk about the taxonomy of our habit personalities. Could yeah. you explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, this is, I, I, I found this because I was very interested in these different patterns that I was picking up from people. Because a lot of times when you read the research about habits or you read discussions of habits, there's sort of this unspoken assumption that we all have the same aptitude for forming habits and that we all have the same attitude towards habits. And if we can't form the habit, we're broken? Yeah, yeah, it's because you're lazy. You have no self, you know, no willpower, you know. <laughs> and that just it didn't make sense to me. And also there was, I had, this, I had this crucial conversation with a friend where she said to me, here's the thing about me, I would like to have the habit of exercise and when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. But now I can't go running. Why? And I thought, well, why? Because it's the same person, the same habit. One time it was effortless. Now she can't do it. So what's going on? And what I found after months of sort of like completely mind-blowing um, uh, work was what I call the four tendencies framework. And this divides the whole world into four categories. <laughs> they say there are two kinds of people, the kind of people that divide people into two kinds of people, and the kind who don't, I'm the kind that does. <laughs> Fair um, enough. We'll grant you that. So it's, it's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And it has to do with how you meet an expectation. Um, forming outer expectations like a work deadline, a request from a spouse, and then inner expectations like your own desire to keep your New Year's resolution, your own desire to learn French. Mm-hmm. Um, so most habits form, come into an inner, an inner expectation, something you expect from yourself. And so in the four categories, describe how people respond in these patterns. So upholder tendency Upholders respond readily to outer and inner expectations. So they meet a work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. And they want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important as other people's expectations. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they agree that it makes sense. So they hate anything inefficient or arbitrary. Um, They essentially make everything an inner expectation because if they buy in, they're all in. If you haven't convinced them that something's worth doing, they're just not going to do it. I have to confess, guilty as charged. Is that you? Does that totally. You? Totally. Okay, there you go. We can talk more about that. <laughs> um, next, obligers. And that was my friend on the track team. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner mm. expectations. So when she had a coach and a team waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. But it was only her expectation for herself to go running, then she struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist, and they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. They just resist all forms of structure. I got an email just today from a rebel who said she got an email at work that said, please read, and she immediately deleted it. (laughs) Um, But, um, and there's a quit. Most people can kind of tell what they are right away. Just like you, you were like, bingo, I, I recognize myself. Um, there's a quiz on my site ha- at happiercast.com slash quiz if you want to take a quiz that will actually kind of diagnose you. Um, I have but- to tell you, as I was reading this and I read about each, I could relate to each one of them having had moments with them. Well, And, and that's absolutely true. I mean, I think 
Um, none of us want to do something that's totally dumb, arbitrary, and fair. So in that way, we're all questioners. Um, we all have something called reactance, which is if we feel too controlled, if we feel like other people are too directing of us, we push back. So mm -hmm. in that way, we're kind of all rebels. There's always times for some of us where we will do what someone else needs, even if it means sacrificing um, a, you know, an expectation that we have from ourselves. So in that way, we're all like obligers. And, and then there's sometimes you know, when whatever is important to us is so important that we're going to follow that no matter what. And that, so in that way, we're all like upholders. But I think for most people... And I go into much greater depth than this. Um, the, it, it, their tendency pervades a lot of their responses, mm -hmm. um, sort of in a, it, it, it kind of flavors um, everything. Even if they, if they have a little bit of, of everything, there's one that really is their tendency. I have to say I saw that as I was reading through the book and thinking about these various aspects of change and when and why I've been successful in changing habits. I find that different um, environments that I'm in – the way that I'm managed in different environments, what my colleagues are like, may, and also what the situation is. Am I at work? Am I doing something in the community? Is this for my daughter? Um, I will be much more likely to be an obliger with the pediatrician than I am with my coach, where I found I, you know, I was given a plan as I started to run and became went from a couch potato to a marathoner. Um, but if I didn't understand why it was on that plan, I didn't do it. Well, so let me say... That is a hundred percent questioner. So you're saying, "Well, with my pediatrician, and I'm an obliger." Okay, because the first question a questioner asks is, "Why am I listening to you?" And the authority and the respect given to the quest to the person making the expectation is of paramount importance to a questioner. And so, if a question, because I I talked to a high school student who said, "I'm a rebel when this one teacher gives me an assignment, and then I'm an upholder when this other teacher gives me an assignment." Well, it's because one teacher he respected. Right. So then he would do it, no problem. With the other teacher, he didn't respect, so he didn't do it. That's questioner. Because the questioner's first question is, why am I listening to you? <laughs> right. And also, I, uh, let, me, let me make a guess. Questioners often love to customize. <laughs> yes. When you were given your plan for how to train, did you often tweak it and be like, well, maybe you say to do this, but I'm going to do it my way. Can I do the Sunday run on Saturday? Absolutely. Yeah, that's very questioner because, like, an upholder, it, like, gets a lot of satisfaction from, like, following the plan and, like, executing. But questioners are always like, you know what, I think I can make this a little better. I think that I can make this more efficient. I think I see how I can make this work better for me. Very question. Absolutely. So once we get a sense of what our tendencies are, how does this shape the way that we approach building and changing our habits? There's all kinds of implications. And I really think that once you know your tendency, you really you can manage yourself much better and you can also manage other people much better. Because often we're trying to change our habits, but then often we're trying to help other people change their mm -hmm. habits. You know, like you're either trying to take your own blood pressure medication or to help somebody else take their blood pressure medication. So like one of the key, key, key things, I think, and, and one of the insights from the book that seems to have made the biggest difference for people, if you are an obliger, and an obliger, again, is a person who readily meets outer expectations but struggles to meet inner expectations, and this is the largest tendency, this is the one that the most people belong to, um, the key way that you will meet an expectation is by creating a system of outer accountability. That is the crucial step for an obliger. And so if you were an obliger who, like, if, you know, you're struggling, um, you are a, you work in corporate world, but you want to leave and start your own business. And so there's a lot of steps that you need to take in order to get that going. And you really want to do it. You're totally committed. And yet month after month is going by and you're not making any progress. I, and if you are an obliger, I would say what you need is external accountability, whether that takes the form of forming an accountability group with other people who are mm -hmm. working on aims, could be the same kind of aim, could be totally different, who are going to hold you accountable. You could hire a coach who's going to, that's what they're there for. They're going to give you great advice, but they're also going to hold you accountable for follow through. Uh, get a client. Make a deal where somebody's, somebody's money's on the line. They're like, man, you got to deliver here. Some Whatever it would take to get you the accountability that you need. Because once obligers have outer accountability, they follow through. So it's creating some mechanism, yes. human, mechanical, yes. some mechanism where what you've done becomes visible to someone else where they could theoretically judge you. Exactly. And it's funny because with different obligers, different things trigger accountability. For instance, for some obligers, paying. If they've paid for a class, they feel like they have to go. For other obligers, it's almost the opposite. They feel like, well, I paid, so it's like I'm off the hook. 
So you got to think to yourself, well, what's going to make me feel like, for instance, a lot of times spouses do not make good accountability partners because your spouse, they're not going to really like, they're going to let you off the hook. You don't really feel <laughs> right. that accountable to the spouse. But like if you hired a coach, that's somebody like you're paying and their only job is to hold you accountable and to help you do that. It's um, the role of the weigh-in weekly at Weight Watchers. A hundred percent. And I think that's a huge part of it. Now, in fact, um, but, but because accountability partners can sometimes fall apart because if one person loses interest or gets distracted or whatever, it, it, it just ends. Accountability groups can be more stable if you don't mm-hmm. want to pay for a coach or a class or a trainer or whatever. Right. So join a running club yeah. because they meet every Saturday at the library. And right. that way, if one person's not there, the club still meets. Right. If your neighbor goes out of town for a month, then you don't stop running. And actually, on my site at GretchenRubin.com, I have a starter kit to help you start an accountability group because a lot of people want to just form these groups. And it, it's everything from we need to all finish our Ph.D. theses to um, we all want to start our own business to we all want to, you know, network more or whatever. And, um, and, and, it's, and it can be completely different. You don't have to have the same aims at all. It's just about this idea that there's a group of people group of people who are going to be looking over your shoulder. And for those people who are tuning in and listening, um, I want you to know I'm talking with Gretchen Rubin, who's the extraordinary author of The Happiness Project and Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. If you're listening to this and relating to one of the tendencies that Gretchen is talking about, give us a call and tell us about it. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Gretchen, now that we're armed, or once we really are armed with understanding these tendencies, um, and we want to start creating what you call the pillars of habits, kind of the framework that's going to make habit change possible. Um, You listed them as monitoring, first things first, scheduling, and accountability. Would you mind kind of walking us through those things? Yeah, these are sort of the, they're very familiar, they're very powerful, um, they're really good to think about when you're thinking about um, about changing your habits. So monitoring is the first one. So there are 21 strategies, um, I should say, that I that I argue you can use to make or break your habit. And 21 sounds like sort of a terrifyingly large <laughs> number, but it's good because what it means is some of these will work for you, but some of them may not work for you. Um, some of them are available to us at some times in our lives, but they're not available to us at all times. So the, 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 there's a whole bunch to think about. But the four that you mentioned are four that are really, uh, really essential to, to, to consider in your arsenal of habit change strategies. So monitoring is almost like an uncanny um, strategy in that if you merely monitor a behavior, even if you're not trying to change, you will start to do a better job with it, um, whether you are keeping a food journal so that you eat more healthily or you are tracking what you're spending in order to spend more wisely. Um, there's something about just knowing what you're doing that helps start edging you in the right direction. And, of course, once you're monitoring something, then it's much easier to see, like, oh, well, I thought I was doing a lot more networking calls than I'm actually doing. You know, because sometimes it's, like, easier in your mind to remember all the things you did and forget all the times you skipped it. Well, and uh, as a Wharton person, that's music to our ears. We're yeah. all about data and measurement. And that's their famous sort of business school. You manage what you measure. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I think for a lot of people, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at work every day they are working with metrics. They have standards for success. They know what their business goals are. Um, I wonder if any of them have actually thought about taking that same practice yeah. and bringing it into their personal lives and how they change themselves. Yeah. If there's, and, and some, some people say to me, well, you know, the important things in life can't be measured. And I'm like, if it's important, find a way to measure it. Like, mm-hmm. if you're like, I want to spend more time reading out loud with my daughter. It's like, okay, well, how many nights? You say that's an important value. Absolutely. How many times a night, a week is it actually getting done? It would be good for you to know that. Um, and also because sometimes it can be comforting, you know, because then sometimes people beat themselves up too much. Oh, I never do this. Well, if you look back and you're like, well, you know, actually, I don't do it every night, but I did it four out of seven, then that can be comforting. So monitoring can be very, very helpful. This also taps into Laura Vanderkam's work about calculating how you use your time. I love Laura Vanderkam's work. I had, her work on time is extraordinarily interesting and helpful. Absolutely. Yes. So yes. in a nutshell, um, 
what Laura recommends is that instead of thinking as in time in terms of this half hour or that hour, think of your week. Yeah. And track what you do over an entire week and then look at how your time is spent. Yeah. Think about what's important to you and reorganize your week so that you're putting the time into things that you want and, and meeting your biggest priorities. I mean, a lot of what she says, it's like once you see the way that she says it, it just becomes so obvious. It's funny because I read a lot, and um, every week on my Facebook page, I post a picture of all the books that I read that week. And so many people say, like, oh, I love to read, but I never, I never get a chance to read. I, ne- I only read a book every, a year or something. And I'm like, well, how much time do you actually spend reading? Because the funny thing is, if you don't spend any time reading, you won't get anything <laughs> right. read. I actually spend a lot of time reading. And so it turns out, if you spend a lot of time reading, you will read books. Um, it's because that's super important to me. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to make time for that. Right. And, and it's also how you identify the ways you're wasting time. Right. Exactly. Because you might say to yourself, it's very easy, I mean, especially with something like the Internet, for a lot of time to be sucked up in kind of a very low value but very easy, convenient use of time. And this is where Laura's um, argument that we should time track comes in and that, with the monitoring. Because if you realize, well, you're spending three hours reading headline news on the internet, well, maybe you want to spend five minutes doing that, like once a day, and then read a novel for two hours. Yeah, it stopped me from scrolling through who do I know on LinkedIn. I I mean, right? This is just hypnotic, right? Once you start, you cannot stop. I mean, it is so true. And also, in going back to Weight Watchers, because it happened to be a way that I lost 40 pounds about 12 years ago and kept it off. Wow. So it changed my life. And another part of it wasn't just the weekly weigh-in, it's that you counted your points. Yes. Right. And you kept track of it. You monitored what yes. you ate, and it became its own goal and its own kind of satisfaction. Yes. Yeah. Just knowing what's going on is a huge first step. Um, so speaking of first steps, one of the yeah. other things you say is first things first. When do you begin? Do you wait for the first of the year, the first of the month, the special day? Well, there's sort of two answers to that that are, like, exactly contrary to each other. <laughs> one is begin now. It's easy to fantasize about the perfect time, and I am certainly guilty of this. And it can last for a year because it goes like this. You know, everything's so crazy after the holidays. I want to let things die down. Oh, you know what? After spring break, then everything, then my schedule will be back to normal. Well, it's the summer. Every, once the fall begins, that's when it's going to be a good time. Oh, you know what? Look up. It's the holiday time. I can't do it now. A whole year has gone by, you know. So you... You, it's often a fantasy that your future self is going to have more time and everything's going to be easier, but actually it's not going to be any easier for you in a week than it would be today. So on that hand, the, now is the best time to get. On the other hand, you do not want to begin at a terrible time. You don't want to, you don't want to um, make things unnecessarily difficult. So I think you want to be mindful. But one thing that's really worth thinking about is um, what's called the strategy of the clean slate. When we go through a major transition, and this is one of the the strategies that's not available to us at all times because we're not usually going through a major transition, but when we are, all our old habits are wiped away, and that is a great time for new habits to come in, new, better habits to come in. So, for instance, a fantastic time is when you move. So many habits are wiped clean. Your neighborhood, your daily routine, your environment, it's all a great time because you have this fresh, clean slate to I write have, on. I have a really good friend who's just going back to work after 14 years at home with her kids. Mm. And she was having a moment of like, oh, my God, I need to completely rethink how my life is working. And while there was a moment of anxiety, there's also a huge opportunity in yes. that. Yes, and and it could be a, a new place that you live. It can be a new job, a new position, a new relationship, like a um, you know uh, a marriage, a divorce, a new baby. We got a new puppy. My new puppy totally. I had to change all my exercise habits, which I'd had for <laughs> years and years and years, because my new puppy. Um, or, it's like having um, a baby. <laughs> no, right. And, um, or it, and sometimes it could be a little thing. I heard a hilarious story from a woman who she was like telling me how she, she had junk food every night when she um, came home from work. And it was like she said it was like the car had its own volition and would just like turn into the driveway. And she could not change this habit. It was so entrenched. And then for whatever reason, she was renting a new car. And it had that new car smell and that kind of like almost surgical, you know, ready for surgery, clean feeling that new cars have. And she just, it flashed in her mind, in, my, in this new car, I will never eat fast food. 
And she said it was like that. And then she had no trouble not having the fast food. So it was even a pretty minor change, you know, because she was driving the same route. Nothing in her life had changed. Only the car was different. The thing about the clean slate, you've got to grab that opportunity because it's a very brief window before you start the new habits. The, new ha- the brain is trying to form new habits because that's how it expands its bandwidth for novel or urgent matters. Ah, so you're and, receptive to it. It's not right. only that you do have to figure things out around this change in your life. Yes, so you want to be, you want to construct it. You want to mindfully use mindlessness. So you want to think, so your friend who's going back to work, what it, does she want to exercise before work? Does she want to leave work at a certain time every day? Does she want to have certain habits about, like, how often she checks her email when she gets home? Does she want to have a habit for how she uses her lunch hour? Does she want to um, incorporate brainstorming time? Does she want to have, like, a closed-door policy for part of the day? The more, and you want to start as you will, as you will continue, because it's, it's going to start feeling harder and harder to change the further you get into it. So that first week, if she's really thought through how she wants this to go, she's going to be setting herself up for success much more than kind of being like, well, I'm going to take it easy on myself that first week while I'm getting settled in. No, you're missing your window. You know, use that to get yourself the habits that you want, because this is a really great time to do it pretty painlessly. So one of the things that she and I have been talking about is how she's going to do this. And she had asked me for advice. And I started to realize, and it's funny, I was reading your book while we were talking about this. And at first, I was going to say, well, why don't you do it this way? And then I realized I should probably tell her how I do it as an example. But Mm -hmm. that may not work for her. Yes. So when we get back from the break in a few minutes, I'd like to talk about the different ways that we can understand ourselves, like are you a lark, and how we can put that to use along with our tendencies to implement change in our lives. Um, So I've been talking with Gretchen Rubin, author of Better Than Before, here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School, and I'm your trusty host, Laura Zarrow. Um, When we come back from the break, I do hope you'll give us a call at 1. 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us, what are the habits that are haunting you and what are the ones you'd like to bring into your lives? We'd really love to hear from you all. So give us a ring and we'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, everyone, and our ongoing conversation about how we can help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, and joining us today is Gretchen Rubin, author of The Happiness Project, and her new book, actually it's a book that came out last year that just came out in paperback, Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. We've been talking about habits, how you break the bad ones, how you bring in the good ones, all with the understanding that it helps make us happier, more effective people. So with that, Gretchen, welcome back. Thank you. Um, So before the break, we were talking about, you know, we'd gone over um, how our tendencies shape the way that we respond to change and do things. And in the book, I also noticed there was a way that you led us to understand ourselves in different ways so that as we were constructing new habits and new behaviors, they were likely to stick things like what time we get up in the morning. Can you explain a little bit of that to us? Yeah, well, it goes back to this idea that we were talking about before, which is that you know people are really different from each other, and so there aren't these hard and fast rules that are just going to be universally applicable. And so in the, I call it the strategy of distinctions. I try to point out distinctions among people that can help you understand um, what kind of habit is more likely to work for you. So, for example, morning people and night people. It turns out this is a real thing. I, I'm a morning person, and I used to think that everybody could be a morning person if they just went to sleep earlier. Um, but that <laughs> Our is engineer not... Dan is shaking his head, clearly not a morning person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, the idea that you're, like, going to get up early and work on the annual report from 7 to 8 a.m. is not going to work if you're a night person because night people are just at their most productive, creative, and efficient much later in the day. So you really want to think about um, when you're at your most energetic, when you're at your freshest, and take advantage of that instead of thinking that you should do it one way or that one way is the right way. Um, so, for example, because I am a morning person, I've learned that I can get up at 4 o'clock, read my email, exercise, have breakfast and snuggle with my daughter, and shower and get to work. I am useless come 8 o'clock at night. Yes. And, and I'm just not going to pretend otherwise. 
Exactly. And I was talking to um, a friend of mine who has, she's a morning person, her husband's a night person. And it was a constant source of tension because in the morning, like, he would get up and try to help get the kids off to school and get the household organized and everything. But he was super grumpy. And she said he was, like, moving in a fog. He, he didn't even really help. And it was just this con- And then finally, she was like, look, stay in bed. You're not helping. Stay in bed, sleep late. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand off the end of the night to you. And I'm just going to be, like, in my pajamas, like, doing a crossword puzzle before I go to sleep. And you're going to be handling that time. And he was like, great, fine, because that's, like, he's much better then. And she was at her worst. And so they found a way to take advantage of it. So it worked um, to everybody's strength. So yes, this, is this strength. something that we should consider applying in the workplace and not just in our homes? Well, absolutely, because often what happens is a manager or the boss thinks that whatever works for them is what should work for everybody, and they, so they set things up that way. So, for instance, if you, um, like, if you were my boss and, <laughs> and you said, hey, we're going to have a staff meeting every morning at 7.30 a.m., I'd be like, that's great, because I'm at my best early in the morning, too. I'll be there with my cup of coffee and my pencil sharpened. But if there's a couple night people there, you're not going to get the best work from them. You're not going to get their best attention and their best ideas. So you as a manager would want to know, or as a team member, you would want to know, okay, well, how is this going to work for our team? And can we schedule that at a time that's going to bring out the best in everybody? Because sometimes things can be done a lot of different ways, but you have to know what considerations to take into account. And certainly, like, time of day turns out, you know, at the extremes, it can matter a lot. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this program is the value of diversity yes. in the workplace. We've, of course, talked about it in terms of gender and race and nationality, but these are personality yes. differences that are also valuable. So I wouldn't suggest that you shape your team and have on your, you know, your interview process, are you a lark? If so, yes, you can join our team. But instead to think about how you can manage a team using technology, using alternate strategies, so you get these different personality types. Well, and another way that this comes along, exactly the kind of diversity that you're talking about, it has to do with work pace. Because um, people have very different preferred patterns of work pace. So I call it marathoners and sprinters. So marathoners, and I'm a marathoner, we like to start early and kind of do a little bit each day and like work steadily over a long period um, and we tend to like to have a big cushion at the end. We don't like to be up against a deadline. And sprinters, by contrast, really they thrive on the adrenaline of a deadline. Yes. And they like Sprinter. to work very <laughs> intensely um, and hard right up against the deadline. And they feel like that's what makes them the most creative and productive. And if they start too early, they often kind of lose interest or burn out or they're inefficient. They, you know, they, they, they just you know, yeah. wasting time because they're like, oh, God, it's not due for The momentum week. is yeah. propulsive. Yeah. And, it, and you build on it and you swim in it and you get to think about it in a really comprehensive way that I find brings out much better work in me. So, and the thing is, is if you're in the workplace... It can be difficult if someone is trying to manage you in a way that goes against your temperament. Oh, so, it makes the marathoners around me crazy. Well, this is the thing, because, like, oh, you know, we get very panicky. But, like, my sister is a TV writer, and the showrunner of a show, she was, the showrunner is, like, the boss of the writers. He was a, he was a sprinter, and, so, and he, so he really felt like that's how people did their best work. So he would artificially engineer these kind of crisis situations so that there would be these, <laughs> this need to sprint, because he felt like that's how people did their best work. But the fact is, that's how sprinters do their best work. Marathoners do their best work a different way. Well, if you're managing a team, this could be an advantage because you've got some people who are busily working over the long term, and then you've got some people who love to work up against the end. If you manage that right, you, that could be great. If you manage it wrong, you could – I mean, I've heard from several people. Like I, I heard from a lawyer who said that she was working for a partner – who was a sprinter, and so it was always like the night before the brief was due, everybody was there working, and he loved it. And she said it just made her so crazy that she left the firm and went to a different place because she was like, this is ridiculous. We could have all had this done a week ago if we'd set up our work process differently. And so, again, it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just different approaches of strengths and weaknesses, and you want to be aware of it and think it through as you're planning your workflow and as you're thinking about taking advantage of the strengths of different people on your teams. And also, in other words, by becoming aware of ourselves and helping the people we work with become aware of themselves and being sensitive to that, whether it's the people we live with or the people we work with, we can identify when we're having these conflicts and figure out ways to work through them or even how to prevent them. Well, Because there's a real um, human 
tendency to be like, well, this works for me, therefore it's the right way. And to be able to line up all kinds of reasons why my way is the right way, your way is the wrong way. Let me convince you why you need to change. Whereas, in fact, it's often like much more efficient not to be like, I'm right, you're wrong, or vice versa, but just to say, like, this is how I work best, this is how you work best, so how do we work this out between us? So we get everybody's best work. You know, there's something kind of amazing about this, because while we're talking about habits and these human tendencies, that's actually one of the issues that's at the core of um, subconscious bias and a lack of tolerance in the workplace is when we're not aware that our experience is not everybody else's experience. Yes. No, and, and one of the things I really strove to do in the book is to give people a vocabulary, because then it's like it's not it's not like. You know, I'm a sprinter, you're a marathoner. Okay, fine. You know, like, that, there's no judgment there. That's just a way. And now we can have a shorthand for talking about how we're different from each other instead of having these vague ideas that you're a screw-up, you're irresponsible, <laughs> or you're just like this plodding person who wastes endless time. You know, it, 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 because but you have to understand, when you understand yourself, then you can understand other people. But you have to see, in some ways we're a lot like other people, but then in other ways we're very different. We may not be that aware of... Um, the forms that this take. Um, so I think once you're aware of it, it's much easier. I mean, another way this comes up in the workplace all the time is simplicity lovers and abundance lovers. So simplicity lovers want clean walls, bare surfaces, you know, desktops with lots of gleaming wood or whatever, <laughs> um, right. quiet, um, you know, three pencils and a pencil cup type thing. And then abundance lovers like buzz and choice and like visual stimulation and a lot going on. And I remember I went to um, the, like an open plan workplace of a tech company, and it was and it was like uh, decorate your cubicle day and so or week. And so everybody had all this stuff and they were all decorated. And I was walking around and I was thinking this is cool and I bet it was fun, but I could not work here. Too much visual stimulation, too many things disorderly. Like, to me, that does not help me think. I'm like, where's a little conference room with a bare table that I could just, like, go hide in if I had to work here? Um, And, again, it's just being sensitive to, you know, it's not like, this is a creative space, and therefore some people's creativity thrives on that. Some people's creativity thrives on something very different. It's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just that how can we create an environment that, that everybody feels comfortable in. Um, and, there, and there might be very different kinds of solutions for that or different kinds of compromises. But if you're not aware of it, if you're just like, well, this is how people do their best work, well, then there's a big number of people who are going to be standing there scratching their heads saying, yeah, it doesn't work that well for me. Right. And also that we tend to think that whatever seems more disciplined has to be the right and better way. And that's not always the case. Yeah, like what are you thinking of? That's, yeah, well, that's very Well, you know, like we have this, um, maybe it's our puritanical culture, but like, you know, um, proverbs about getting up early in the morning, yeah. um, you know, the, the early bird gets the worm, and the yeah. idea that a clean environment makes you look buttoned up yeah. and pulled together, yeah. and so that if important people are coming into a workplace, people send the message out, you should clean up to give mm-hmm. the impression that yeah. you're pulled together, yeah. yet that could actually totally shut down people yeah. who thrive with more stimulation. Yep. Yeah. And another thing that comes up a lot of times in the workplace is the difference between finishers and openers. So finishers are people who really love to finish, like whether that is like a tube of toothpaste or, (laughs) you know, finishing a report. And they really like that feeling of closing off and completion. And openers really like the idea of opening up something. Like I remember I was talking to a professor and she said, oh, you know, I I have all these like half-finished syllabi or or papers that are sort of seven-eighths done because I love starting it. I love the beginning part of it. But then I lose interest and I'm not interested in like – closing it off and sort of getting it all the way. So you can imagine, and there's pros and cons to both, the, pro, the con of finishers is that sometimes they're too eager to finish. Mm-hmm. Like They love that so much that maybe they're going to cut corners because they are so love crossing that thing off their list, or they may be too conservative. They're not willing to open up a project because they're too concerned that they may not be able to finish it. Well, sometimes it's to our advantage to start things and see where they go and be willing to let them go unfinished rather than not try. You know, that being willing to risk an experiment has a lot of value. And this is also then where by having the diversity on your team yes. and recognizing who yes. they are, that's a powerful pair. 
because the openers are like, let's do it. Come on, guys. It'll be fun. And they got totally juiced about the new opportunity, the new idea. And the finishers are like, hey, man, we got, let's, we, we're almost there. we got to carry it across the finish line because really seven eights done is not done. Right. And like the couple who one takes the morning shift and yep. one takes the evening shift, yep. one part of that team can really put the energy into idea generation, yes. bringing it to the place where it can carry forward. Yeah. I was once in an interview where I was asked, are you a fire starter or a fire tender? Ooh, interesting. Ooh, what did you say? Well, I've tended a lot of fires, but I am definitely a fire starter. It's where I'm most excited. It's where I do my best work. And then I want to start more fires. I Like, the excitement for me is making something from nothing. Yes. Which frightens a lot of people, because if they don't know where the there is, if there's no there there, they don't know what to do. And right. so, so I'm the person for that. I'm but the startup gal. You're exactly right, though, that because then if you can hand it off to somebody who finds the energy in the other part, then you have the like the force of everyone's enthusiasm at a hundred percent of the time instead of trying to manage and kind of bulldoze the people to work on the part that they're not excited by absolutely and when i see work environments and cultures within offices yes where um there's the desire to just get it done and they and that impulse to have everybody be more similar there's much less innovation yes Work gets done on time. They meet deadlines. People are calm. There's a lower level of risk. But as we're talking about, if you match up these personality types and make a place for the innovators, then you can get your fire tenders to bring it on home. Yeah, and again, I think it's like it, it, like what I love about that is there's a vocabulary there now that you immediately understood what they meant, and you're able to explain your own propensities, your own strengths, um, in an easy, quick, non-judgmental way. And it's like, you know, and, there, and maybe somebody's different, and that's fine. But without a vocabulary for it, then it's hard for us to communicate because it's just sort of lost in these kind of vague, abstract, you know, kind of impulses that we don't really know how to name. I feel like once you have a vocabulary, then you can get – everybody can agree much more clearly on what, what's, what's going on. But it's interesting that you say that about um, – like managing towards uniformity because I was just talking to somebody last night who said her husband was in a situation where his boss was slowly weeding out anybody who had a different style from her and she was giving all the best projects and all the promotions to people who had exactly her kind of style and her this woman's husband had a very different kind of style and he was really thinking about whether he needed to leave because he just wasn't like, like this person had a very kind of like, let's get it done and don't tell me what the problems are and like we're just going to keep it going forward. And he was very meticulous and very much like, let's think this through and let's consider what the problems are. You need both kinds of people Absolutely. on a team. But she was eliminating that. I'm like, that's going to get you into trouble because, yeah, you're going to get a lot done, but there might be a lot of really nasty surprises along the way when all the problems that you kicked under the rug <laughs> – <laughs> exactly. Because you haven't had anybody paying attention to that. Absolutely. So what about the other side of that coin? When we decide, when we recognize that we're part of a team, part of a household, part of a community, and we need to change our own habits. Um, you had talked about, you know, how you deal with different things like um, making things convenient or inconvenient, mm-hmm. safeguards. Could you walk us through a few of those? Because I thought they were really um, powerful yet um, manageable. And important mechanisms for change. Of all the 21 strategies um, that we can use to make or break our habits, the strategy of convenience is certainly one that works for everybody, uh no matter what distinction or tendency you fall into. Just to a really staggering degree, we're likely to do something if it's convenient, and we're (laughs) less likely to do something if it's inconvenient. So if there's something you want yourself to do, you want to make it as convenient as possible. Um, I often use, I hate making phone calls. I just hate making phone calls for some reason. So what I'll often do is the night before, I will write down a list of all the phone calls I need to make with the phone numbers. You're like, I can look it up in a second. But I'm like, no, having it right there makes it just slightly more convenient. And so then the next day, I'm like, I'm just going to call. Right. Um, yeah, I actually make a list of the emails that I'm most dreading yeah. writing. And then, and I have to, because I've had in the past, I've put them off because I don't want to deal with them. Yes. And yeah. what I've learned is I have to say in that moment, I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. 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 Very smart. But see, and, and by making it as convenient as possible, yes. you sort of, you grease the wheels. So anything that's, that's kind of a challenge. I mean, it's really hilarious. Like they've done some funny research on this, like, 
um, with with salad bars, if you put tongs in something, people take less than if there's a spoon because it's just more work to get the same food amount with tongs. Oh, and that's so funny. Less. Um, so any, but like, let's say you're you you you've got a new job. And you're like, okay, well, I could pay X amount of money for the gym that's right across the street, but I could pay, I could pay, you know, quite a bit less and go to one that's two blocks away. It's just two blocks. No, if you can, you're unlikely it, to make it there. Yeah, go to go to the one that's across the street because it's going to make a big, big difference. Yes, I find that because I have a treadmill in my house. Yeah. Which admittedly was a clothes hanger for several years, yeah. <laughs> but for the last, I guess, five years now, it's been used at least three days a week, yeah. except when it's gorgeous out. There are times where even if it's beautiful out. I have this sense that there are more barriers between me yes. and the place I go running outside than if I just get on the treadmill. I know exactly. And what if you it's mean. feeling elusive, like I'm afraid that the exercise today is going to go away, I'll be like, you know what? I may not get my vitamin D, but at least I'm moving my body, and I get on the treadmill. Yeah. No. So the strategy of convenience is something you always want to think about. Um, you know, and sometimes it's worth like making an investment in something that, you know, like the gym or like the treadmill or, you know, um, also beautiful, wonderful tools can make um, work more pleasurable. So yes. let's say you're, you're saying, okay, at work, I'm going to bring lunch every day. Well, if you had a beautiful set of expensive kitchen knives that are going to make it just much more fun for you or like some fabulous lunchbox or whatever it might <laughs> right. be, it's worth spending a little time and money if you have it to give yourself good tools because that makes it feel more convenient. It makes it feel more e easier and more fun. Um, and then, but, and then the converse of it is the strategy of inconvenience, which if there's something that you don't want yourself to do, then you want to make it as inconvenient as possible. So let's say you want to drink less coffee in the afternoon at work. Well, you could say to yourself, okay, I have to go out for coffee. I can't go to the coffee shop that's in the in the first floor of my my office building. I need to go to the one that's a block away. Well, that's going to be it's not far, and it's good for you to be out there walking, but it's a little bit more inconvenient, and that probably will cut down on your coffee habit, even if you're not consciously saying now I'm going to have less coffee. There probably will just be times where you're like, oh, you know what? I don't quite have enough time to get there and back before the meeting or whatever. By making it a little bit more inconvenient. Um, you're going to disrupt that habit. Right. Like I did it with spending. By, I leave my real credit cards at home, mm. and I only take my debit card with me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not spending money. You know, I'm not spending the extra money. Like if right. I don't have it, I'm not spending it. You know, it's interesting credit cards because a lot of people, for a lot of people, credit cards make it easier to spend because it's like you don't even because they don't feel the money leaving their right. hands. Right, that's the thing for me. But then some people find it easier because of the credit card they have like a total exact account of where their money went. And so it helps them with monitoring, but if they spend cash, they feel like they don't know what they spent it on, and so they're much more likely to be irresponsible with it. Exactly. But this is a good example where don't assume that something, if somebody's like, oh, yeah, leave your credit cards at home. Well, think about you. Like, how do you feel about cash versus credit cards? Because it might affect you a different way. Either, and either choice could be effective depending on your psychology, but you don't want to make the wrong choice because you're actually going to make it easier for yourself to impulse buy. And being the questioner that I am, I had to find the middle solution, <laughs> which was that exactly. the credit card stays at home. I don't use cash because I just piddle it away. Yeah. And I use my debit card <gasps> because it's perfect for me. And That's I right. get a complete accounting of what I've spent. I can see it. Yes. But I can't spend what I don't have. And it's actual real money. Yes. Yes. That's the thing about a debit card. It just feels more like real money. But, of course, this is why casinos use fake money. Like, they want <laughs> you to make it feel, oh, this is just... This is just, these are just toys. These are just like little things. It's not really money. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That I love the debit card is like the best of both worlds. That's a great Yeah, idea. it made a big difference. Once I got over, and a lot of kids today don't remember when you couldn't, you went to a bank and you wrote out a slip and that's how you got cash. Yeah. When I went to college and all of a sudden there was this plastic card and a hole in the wall with buttons and I could put my card in the wall and it gave me money. This was magical. Yes. I overdrew that account a lot when I was 18 years old. Yeah. But over time we learn these things. Yeah. Um, another thing that you talked about was pairing, which I thought is interesting because yeah. um, one of the faculty member in Wharton People Analytics, Katie Milkman, has done a lot of research exactly. on incentivizing. Yes. So could you tell us a little bit about what you call pairing? So pairing is when two things go together. They're paired up. And so it's not that you, you aren't giving yourself a reward. So a reward is something that you have to justify or earn. And pairing is, is just that two things only go together. So let's take the treadmill, because the treadmill is something I've noticed people often use with pairing. So I love the show Game of Thrones. 
And I could say to myself, I only watch the Game of Thrones if I'm on the treadmill. If I'm on the treadmill, I can be watching Game of Thrones. Not on the treadmill, there is no Game of Thrones. I broke my leg. Now I'm in bed. I can't go on the treadmill. Do I get to watch Game of Thrones? No, because I only watch Game of Thrones on the treadmill. I did this when I was in college with showering. I made a rule for myself that I could only shower on a day that I exercised. Oh. So you can go a day or two without exercising, but you know, at a certain point you want to take that shower, especially when you're in college. And so that was a really good pair. But it's not a reward because when you trigger the idea of rewards of habits, it can be really undermining to a habit. This is just the idea that two things only go together. Somebody used it in this very funny way um, as a way to have an occasional treat. So he was a guy who loved Cinnabon, um, but he made a rule that he could only have it when he traveled through the Newark airport. He hated <laughs> okay. the Newark airport. He had to go in there, you know, a couple of times a year for work. And, and he was like, well, do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? I was like, I think it's brilliant because you still get to get them sometimes. You don't like going to Newark Airport, so it's like a little bright spot. Right. And you're certainly not going to go out of your way to go to Newark Airport like every day. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of a great... It's pair. never going to run out of... Con- it's never going to get out of control. It's never going to get out of control. And so it's sort of a good pairing. Or like I just made a rule for myself that I don't try to work on an airplane. I only read for fun on airplanes now. Because I didn't even really do that much work before, but I felt guilty about it. And now I'm like, you know what? If I'm on a plane, I am reading a novel for fun. And now I look forward to flying because I'm like, oh, all that time Because it, it's read. your time. You know, you said something before, though, about a pairing that worked for you that I don't think would work for other people, about showering and exercising. Mm. But that suggests that the, because you're an obliger, right? No, I'm an upholder. You're an upholder. But that works with your upholder personality. You mean because I can make a rule and stick to it for myself. Right. Other yes. people would say, screw it. <laughs> I'm going to take a shower. Yeah, so you have to know whether you can keep a rule for yourself like that. Right. And, and so some people can and some people can't, but that's a very good point. Right. So in other words, knowing who you are and how you operate yeah. is going to help you inculcate um, these habits in a, in a deeper and more enduring way. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But sometimes people just, do, it doesn't even occur to them to do it. It's like, it, or like, um, I, I remember when I, I was living in San Francisco a long time ago and I was, um, I would say that I could only buy a bagel from this store that was a mile away. So if I wanted a bagel, I had to walk there. If I didn't want a bagel, I didn't have to walk there. So there was no, it wasn't like the bagel is a reward for walking there. It was like, you can walk to get the bagel or don't walk to get the bagel, whatever you want. But those two things only happen together. Um, I couldn't, like, hop on a bus and go, go get the bagel. <laughs> and, and so a lot of times, um, or I read about this study where they gave people a, uh, uh, an, I, um, an, uh, a book on tape. Yes. And I'm this was Katie's study. Is this Katie's yes. Study? Where they I'm package was, juicy novels. What, and they put it in, in the locker? In a locker in yeah. the gym. And they found that. that people came to exercise more regularly when they were rewarded with the juicy novel. Well, and it's funny because now I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which I do with my sister. Um, and it's so much fun. And a lot of people have said that they use it as pairing. Like, they're like, oh, I only listen to your podcast while I'm cleaning, or I only listen to your podcast if I'm commuting to or from work. So it's both their reward and their incentive. Right, exactly. Like, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, that's right. Actually, the commuting isn't pairing because you would be commuting anyway. But like, oh, I'm going to do it while I fold the laundry. Well, you can go quite a long time without folding laundry, (laughs) um, in my experience. Um, You know, so it's it's sort of like, okay, these two things go together together. and well, so, or so, like, instead of going, taking my dog out for a five-minute walk, I want to take him for a 20-minute walk. Well, it's better for him, better for me. I'll listen to this podcast while I'm doing it. I don't Gretchen, to the I got to tell you, I want to spend much more than an hour with you, but it's time that we say goodbye for now. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Michelle and Dan. Um, next week, my guests will be Campbell Brown and Romy Jucker talk about their project called The 74. Thank you so much for listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I wish you a great week. We'll talk to you soon. 